Amen. As that's going around, if you have a Bible, you can go to Jonah chapter 3. Um, I may end up coming down this aisle. I can feel the temptation already. It's like they rolled out a red carpet for me to preach. Um, so we're just hang on, and we're going to do that. And, and by the way, congrats to all of you that made it to the 930 service. I know some of you... Yeah, some of you were already 930 people. Some of you, this is a momentous occasion that on a Sunday, you got here and your kids are here and you didn't kill your husband. Well done, well done. So as we jump in today, I want you to remember with me back to maybe middle school, high school. I don't remember elementary school that well, but I remember falling in love. See, I was a cold lunch kid. How many of you were, were cold lunch people? Yeah, like I was so picky that I was, it was cold lunch unless it was pizza roll day, Amen. If it was pizza roll day, then, then I was a hot lunch person. And the greatest thing that could happen on pizza roll day was that the cook would step out. Do you remember this moment? And she would go, what would she say? Seconds. <laughs> Seconds on pizza rolls were amazing, right? And, and, and I remember just how uh, amazing. How many of you were hot lunch people and you were like seconds every day? Like that's, yeah. So as we start to talk today, I want you to be thinking about the, the eagerness with which sometimes we jump into seconds. Some of you have such large families that Thanksgiving is coming and you're already thinking, I've got to be first in line for seconds. Not for first, like I'm planning my, anybody got that strategy? You're planning seconds already because we love that moment. We love where there's something more offered to us than what we imagined we were going to get. And we'll say this today, you'll hear this today, but one of the things that you're going to find about the book of Jonah as we've been studying this book is that this is really a book that's not about a prophet who's just running away. It's not about a God who forgives that prophet. It's not about a big fish swallowing somebody. It is actually a book, a story about the God of second chances. It's about a God who forgives, a God who redeems. And, and as we jump in, I want to pick up right where we left off. We'll get there. But let me review, if you haven't been with us for a while, the book of Jonah starts with God coming to this prophet Jonah. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. We'll have it on the screen. Can you on the back see okay? The screen's okay? All right, good. If you see anything today or you're like, I was super confused about that in the building, let us know because we've been living here all week. You haven't. So let us know if there's things we need to fix or tweak and we'll get on that. You might actually get called to volunteer and help us. Um, Jonah chapter one, here's what God says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, as we know, as we've been studying, Jonah's immediate response to God speaking to him was, heck no. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to board this ship, and I'm going to actually try to go 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And as he's fleeing on this boat, this storm rises up, and he actually sleeps downstairs. The sailors are trying to figure this out. Why is God trying to kill us with this storm? Why are the gods trying to kill us with this storm? And Jonah's sleeping, and they cast lots, and they find out that he is the guilty one. And so he says, as many of us would not, okay, throw me overboard. God's obviously trying to kill me. Just throw me overboard. He says that, and he's tossed overboard. And we talked about last week how he was swallowed by the fish, and his prayer within that fish rose up as this prayer of hope, this prayer of trust, this prayer of faith. And that's where we pick up today because it's after that prayer that Jonah is vomited out of the fish, which if that's not the coolest thing in Scripture, you're missing. Anybody says you read the Bible and it's boring has never read that verse. The fish puked a prophet. It's amazing. Look at chapter 3, 
verse 1, and watch what happens here. Then the word of the Lord. Now, then means right after he was puked by the fish. That's, that's what that means. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, I want to pause. I'm going to pause a lot today because there's things that we got to catch and not miss these. Chapter 1, verse 1 said the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1 says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Seconds. It came a second time. See, if you translate these from the Hebrew, these are word-for-word parallels of each other. It's a repetition. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 line up, but one word is different here, and it's the word second. See, I love this because when we think about this story, it's easy to get lost in the Sunday school versions. It's easy to get lost in the narratives, the places where we fix our eyes on Jonah running away or Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. What we don't often realize is what I said earlier, that the heart of this book is that it's a book, it's a story about God giving second chances. And in this very moment, this very verse, God gives Jonah a second chance. I'm speaking to the runaway prophet, the prophet covered in fish juice, a second time. That's the only difference in this verse in chapter one. God spoke a second time. You you know, it's amazing to me how often we as humans are not willing to give people a second chance. Aren't we good at that? Like, aren't we good at just being like, no, you messed with me, I'm done. Like, I cut you off, there's nothing left. We are through, I'm over it, you're finished. But isn't it incredible, and praise God for it, that God is not like that, God comes to Jonah. The word is actually second or again. God comes to Jonah again. And you know what? He does the same for every one of us. God has come to me so many times in my life. Hasn't he come to you? I remember God came to me when I was at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp when I was 12 years old. And I remember hearing the message. I don't remember what the message was, but I remember praying a prayer and saying, Jesus, I want you in my life. And then that later that summer, I went to church camp and I was like, I don't know if that really took when I prayed that at FCA camp. So Jesus, I want you to save me. And I did that for like the next 12 summers in a row. I got saved like 35 times <laughs> because God kept coming to me. Amen. I remember when I was 17 in South Africa on a mission trip for three weeks and walking around the streets and I met this man who asked me a question about God that I couldn't answer and it was in that moment that God said, you're gonna give your life to helping people find God and you're gonna do it back home. I remember in, in college realizing, being confronted in relationships, hey, your, your life is not lining up with what you claim to say you follow God. God came to me in that moment and said, you got to change some things. I remember when I was 22 and I moved to Pittsburgh with Carrie for the first full-time job I'd ever had. It was amazing. They gave me insurance. And it was a ministry job, and God came to me in that. I remember when I was 30 and I graduated seminary and I was ready to quit on church. And God came to me and said, don't quit, don't give up on this. When I was 32 and I had no idea whether this little thing, this little group of people called New Community was even going to survive, I had no idea. And God came. And then at 39, just a month or so ago, and we had no idea where we were going to be meeting. God came to us a second time, a third time, a twelfth time, a two hundredth time. God has given me so many second chances, and he does the same for you too. And listen, maybe that's all you need to hear today. Maybe that's the sermon you need. Listen, that God has not given up on you. Look at somebody close to you. Just put a hand on their shoulder if you know them. If you don't, don't. It's awkward. And just say, God has not given up on you. See, we get to preach to each other. Listen, when we're going to be in church, and this feels like church, so I'm going to get a little more, a little less Caucasian in this place, we need to preach to each other. 
We need to look at each other and say, God has not given up on you yet. God has not given up on you. He's not finished with your life. We need to hear that because that's the story of Jonah. See, in fact, God comes to Jonah. He speaks to him the same message he gave in chapter one. Look at verse two of chapter three. Here's what he tells Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Chapter one, verse two, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Chapter three, verse two, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it. What I think God is doing is saying, are you getting this yet? See, it's the exact same as God's message to Jonah in chapter one. Go to Nineveh and preach. Go to Nineveh and preach. And God says, I still want you to fulfill your calling. You know what this moment is? This is an etch-a-sketch moment. This is a moment, everybody remember an Etch-a-Sketch? Some of you are like, what is that fancy technology? This was the first computer, actually. <laughs> See, you could draw something all over this, and if you messed up, which nobody except Adam Burnside ever figured out how to write actually something real on this. Some of you may have. I'm just picking on Adam. But the way that you did this, when you messed up, you simply went like this. Let's start over. Just shake it off. Taylor Swift is a prophet, right? Just shake it off. And God comes, he says, Jonah, I'm shaking. You've come out of the fish. Understand, I've shaken you loose. I've erased all that. I get the dirt off yourself, and I want you to understand, I have not given up on you, and because I refuse to give up on you means I still have a calling for you. See, it's amazing to think God has not given up on us. What we miss in that moment is that if God has not given up on you, he still has a calling for you. When God shakes that etch-a-sketch moment loose, this is where Jonah's story in chapter one changes in chapter three. See, God came to Jonah in chapter one, said, go preach. Jonah says, heck no, I'm out of here. Chapter three, he says, go preach. Jonah says, I remember the fish. Maybe we should do something different this time. Look at verse three. Jonah obeyed. Everybody say obeyed. The word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, again, we need to pause here. The phrase here is Jonah obeyed. Now, you have to see this in Hebrew to really get it. I know some of you are like, why all these words? Just hang with me. Chapter one, verse two, God says this, arise, go. Now, the Hebrew, go ahead and bring that up, is kumulak. Everybody say kumulak. It means get up and go. Kumulak. Chapter one, verse three, it says, but Jonah rose to flee. Now, check this out. Kumulak, <laughs> Jonah kumbarak. <laughs> He fled. He got out of there. So chapter three, verse two says the exact same thing. God says, arise, go, kum, yalak. And then watch what verse three says. Yonah, which is Jonah in Hebrew, Yonah kum, yalak. <laughs> like he got it. He woke up and said, okay, I'm going to obey. See, Jonah reverses the course. He said, I get it. I don't want to go back to the fish. This is immediate change. See, some of you, when you realize the etch-a-sketch moment, when you realize God says, I'm not giving up on you, just shake it off and try again. I've got a calling for you. Even if that's today, some of you will recognize that when God says that to you, when God speaks that to you, when God enforces that, encourages that in your life, that you actually are going to have to make a move. You need to kumulak. You need to arise and go. You need to get up and do something. You need to maybe call someone and ask for forgiveness to come clean about that thing that you've been avoiding. You need to seek healing out to do whatever it is God has been telling you to do and whatever it is that you've been running from. Today, listen, don't stand in the etch-a-sketch moment and miss the opportunity to obey with immediate action because that's what Jonah does. 
See, here, Jonah gets it right. He obeys, and he goes to this great city. Look at the second part of verse 3. Now, Nineveh, this is where he goes. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. We're told, both in chapter 1 and chapter 3, Nineveh was a great city. Why was it so great? Let me tell you why. This city, historians, archaeologists think that it was about seven and a half miles to get around this city. That that's about how big it was. That at this time, in this culture, there were about 120,000 people living there. It was a cultural epicenter. It was this large city. And so here's what we're told in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Now, if, if you're taking notes, if you're jotting stuff down on your phone, which I can tell all of you are, thank you for, for that. I want you to underline, I want you to write down, I want you to circle, highlight, whatever it is, that word, he began. Jonah began. So, see, Jonah, he started. It was a three-day journey through the city, but Jonah took the first step. Jonah said, I will kumulak, I will obey, I will get up and go, but I have to start, I have to begin. See, his obedience and our obedience too, as the called of Christ, the followers of Christ, has steps. See, Jonah put feet to the ground and he moved. Do you remember in his prayer last week, this is what he said in chapter two, he said, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. He said, that's the truth. If I cling to my worthless idols, then I'm missing out on God's love. When Jonah's standing outside the city and God says, now go, and he says, okay, I'm gonna obey, he takes that first step. He's letting go of the idols. He's surrendering. He's loosening his grip on the way that he thought his life should go. See, some of us need to root our obedience to God not in the entire journey. Some of us are so fixated on, I gotta get to that destination. And God says, I just want you to take the first step. I just want you to begin. I just want you to obey now. Some of you just need to move. You know exactly what God has called you to, who he's called you to be, who he's called you to love. You know all this, and you still haven't, and I still haven't taken the first step. Why? Why don't we do that? Oftentimes it's fear, it's anger, it's shame, it's hurt, it's regret. Whatever those things are that hold us captive, we go, I'm, I'm clinging to this anger, to this fear, to this shame, to this, this, whatever this is, this hurt, and I have to let go of that and step toward what God has called me to do. So the question I want you asking today, what does the first step of your obedience to Christ look like? What is just the first step? Don't worry about the destination. Don't worry about that. The, the, the Psalms say that God's word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. It shows us a step. It doesn't show us the whole course. You know why? Because some of us would freak out and run the other way like Jonah if we saw the whole course. He just says, take a step. Maybe it's making that phone call, writing that letter, going to someone right here, right now, today, being obedient. Whatever it is, do it. Jonah began, verse four, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now just pause for a minute. This is Jonah's whole sermon, right? He begins something and then he proclaims this one sentence sermon. Now, just, we're gonna talk about the sermon in a, minute, in a minute, but imagine his fear, right? This is, as we talked about several weeks ago, this is the city that slaughters people. This is the city that tortures their enemies, that takes human skulls and makes pyramids out of them to threaten their enemies. And Jonah walks into the city and utters a sermon. Now, the sermon in our language is eight words long. In Hebrew, it's five words long. It's short. It's hardcore. It's simple. Some of you, I know you're like, why don't you give that sermon? 
But here's the thing. This message is also incredibly, incredibly offensive. So if I can tell you the truth in eight words, I'll shorten my sermons. I give 40 minutes to get you ready to receive it. That's, that's what we do. But here's what he says in these offensive statements. He gives two phrases. The first is 40 days, period. He says, you got 40 days, time's ticking. God is ready to do something. He's acting. He says, 40 days, and then the second phrase, and you will be overthrown. Now, this is the Hebrew word, hafak. It's a hard word. It's an aggressive word. You're going to be overthrown. You have 40 days, and then you're going to be overthrown. So Jonah speaks this one-sentence offensive sermon to people who skinned foreign men alive. Can you imagine that being your calling? That's what he says. But this word, hafak, is pretty amazing. It had several meanings. Kind of like, I was trying to think of an example. Kind of like our word bar, right? The, bar, the word bar can mean multiple things. It's a place to go get drinks. It's, it, it might be some of you are like, that's the only meaning, right? It's a crowbar. It's a bar of gold. Whatever. Hafak could mean you could be overthrown like you might be destroyed. Or it could also mean you might be overthrown and you're going to be changed. This word is rich. And I think what Jonah's doing in this sermon is he's putting it out there saying, here it is. This is your chance. Time is ticking. You've got 40 days. And you, Nineveh, you have a decision to make. Either you're going to get it or you don't. Either you're going to change or, you're won't, or you won't. You're going to be overthrown one way or the other. You're either going to be destroyed or you're going to be changed. It's up to you. One sermon, one sentence. Maybe we need more of these. And then what happens is what would have been most shocking to the people of this world and this culture at this time, something absolutely unheard of. Look at verse five. The Ninevites believed God. Now notice here that they believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. It wasn't about his fancy preaching. It wasn't about them listening to Jonah. It was about listening to God. It says the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now, this is like a revival in the most unlikely of places. It's a moment people wouldn't have expected. They wouldn't have believed when the tabloids came out saying there's revival in Nineveh. The whole city of Nineveh is repenting. It's like saying Washington, D.C. suddenly found integrity. Or Hollywood, they're, they're suddenly converting. Or Kanye West is starting a church. Oh, that's happening. Uh, some of you. This is how big of a deal this is. So the Ninevites repent. They proclaim this fast top down. And they put on this itchy stuff that would have hurt the sackcloth because they want to suffer. They want to be so uncomfortable that they feel the weight of their sin. And then the repentance gets even more intense. Look at verses 6 through 9. When Jonah's warning reached the king, of Nineveh. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat down in the dust. Now just understand, for a king to get up off his throne in the middle of the day was quite a sign of repentance in general. Look at verse seven. This is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And then I love this. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I don't want you to miss how intense this is. The king says everyone, every person, every animal, livestock, everything we have needs to fast. Everything breathing should repent. I, I read this week. Now, Dave Ward can tell me and others maybe can tell me if this is true or not. But I heard that if 20 cows, if they don't eat for like a day, you can hear the noises from them like a half mile away. 
I don't know if it's true of cows. It's true of my kids after like 30 minutes. But this entire nation is fasting. This is corporate repentance. The king says, we have to cry out to God and we have to feel it. It has to be uncomfortable. This has to hurt us a bit. As we start, listen, as we start in this new space, I, I wanna share something with you here. I, actually, I don't really wanna share this, but I, wanna, I felt like I had to share this today. See, when I was in high school, one of the times that God spoke to me was through a book I was reading by a guy named A.W. Tozer. If you've never read anything by A.W. Tozer, you should go read it all. He was a brilliant writer of the faith from the Alliance background. But he had this quote, and listen, I don't remember quotes. When guys play that movie quote game and quote stuff in college, and it's all funny, like I lost that game every time. But this quote has always stuck with me. Here's what he said. Revivals are born after midnight. He said revivals are born after midnight. They require a serious mind and a determined heart. I love this. To pray past the ordinary into the unusual. So the thing I don't really want to tell you, but I feel like I have to, is, is this. When it comes to thinking about new community, this church and what I think, what I believe God has in store for us, when it comes to who we are and who we could be, I, I spend a lot of nights restless and wondering what it is that we're really doing, what it is that we're really chasing after. I hang on to this quote because I find myself wondering and trying to figure out oftentimes why the spiritual condition of our church isn't where it could be. It's not a guilt trip. It's to say, why aren't we where we could be with Jesus? And I think as I'm studying Jonah, I think the only thing I'm wondering as I see this king repenting and calling people to repentance, what I'm wondering is if maybe I need to repent of my own failure in spiritual leadership. Now, I know some of you are going to hear that and you're going to go, we need to encourage Justin. I don't, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what, it, what I need to hear. But I think there's so much more. And if I'm honest with you, I wonder if as a church we can claim success. Can we say we're successful? Or more honestly, if as, a, if as a leader of new community, I can claim success. See, we have some amazing God-inspired things happening. I believe that. But, but listen, if I'm completely honest with you, as the leader of this congregation, one of the leaders, I would say that the majority of the people under the care of new community, the majority, I would say that it's just about going to church when it's convenient and then going about the rest of our lives. And my restlessness, my after midnight repentance is just simply built from a sense that I don't know what else to do, how to change that. I don't know how to call you into what it is God has for you. And I think I need to lead us in repentance, repentance for my own heart that gets caught up in watching and going, how are our attendance numbers? As if that really means the kingdom of God is real. Repentance, for many of us, that we have no interaction with people who are in poverty, who desperately need the gospel lived out in their lives. Repentance, that we see pictures from Ethiopia and we tear up, but we really don't ever do any mission work here in our own community. Repentance, that oftentimes we're continuing in sexual relationships that we know God doesn't desire for us. Repentance, that we write off week in and week out, not showing up because we're so tired I think we need this call to say we've got to change some things because we're missing out, not guilt, but we're missing out on the abundant life that Christ has promised. Jonah says 40 days and you'll be overturned. And if I'm honest, listen, I wish that our church, our country, and the people that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, I wish that we would hear that and I wish we'd be different and I wish we'd get serious about following Jesus and actually call on God and say, do something different in us. 
And what I want to say to you today is maybe this is on me. I don't know, but I either think Jesus is who he says he is, and we need to take our lives and lay it all on the line and truly start following him, or we need to get out of the way and be honest that all we're looking for is a guarantee of heaven someday and convenience and complacency right now. I think we got to be honest. I think we should take up our crosses and start following him into inconvenience or stop showing up to be entertained and just stay home. If it's just about Sundays, go do something better with your Sunday. Because we have never been, nor will we ever be a church that says we're content with Sundays. We are wanting to find and follow Christ beyond Sundays. This is what amazes me about this story. Jonah preaches this one sentence, fire of a sermon, and the people who are farthest from God said, yes, we're going all in with God. We're turning to God. Now, let me, let me just freeze that as we start to wind down. Some of you right now are sitting here, and most people would look at you and say, you are so far from God, but the truth of the matter is, and you know this and God knows this, you're closer than you've ever been. You're the ones who are maybe closer to God. And I think so often we want to judge the people who are far from God, but it's so possible you can be so close. And today I'd love it if you're so close to God, if you'd let your heart break. Look at verse 10 to finish this chapter. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. Remember when they said, who knows, God may yet relent. He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. See, this chapter is about second chances, third chances, 12th chances. God shows Jonah grace in verse one, and he shows Nineveh grace in verse 10. God relented. He showed mercy. He showed compassion. And you know what? Listen, in this new building, once again, I'm praying the same thing. I think you've heard this echo from me in the past year or so because it's the theme. It's the thing God just keeps pounding into my head. I'm assuming because I'm not getting it. Ever had that experience? God just keeps hammering you because it's like someday you're going to get this. But it's the echo. I'm looking for God's compassion because for us as a church, love has to be the movement. Guilt is not the movement. Love is the movement. The love of God is the movement in your life. The love of God is the movement in our church. If it's not God's love, you're not going to change. If you're not encountering and experiencing God's love, it's not going to change. So where I failed as a leader, I'm looking for God's mercy. I'm much less interested in the Sunday morning show and more interested in the Monday night, the Tuesday night, the Wednesday night, hanging out around the dinner table going, what is Jesus doing in your life and how are you responding to that? Because it's in those places that hafak, that overthrowing changes us, that we're really converted and really knowing who God is. As we start to close, I've been trying to convince us all for about three weeks now that there's a little Jonah in all of us. The great writer Eli Wiesel said, Jonah would appear to be the perfect illustration of the anti-hero in Scripture. Having been a complete, watch this, having been a complete failure all of his life and in all of his endeavors, he fails as a prophet since he chooses to become an anti-prophet. He fails as a fugitive since he does show up in Nineveh. He couldn't even run away right He even fails in his death wish. Twice he asks to die only to survive and live in remorse. And aren't we glad that the scriptures are full of second chance people? Abraham, who trafficked his wife Sarah, gets a second chance. Moses, who murdered an Egyptian, is called to lead a revolution. Rahab, who's a prostitute, is responsible for the salvation of God's people. David hires someone for murder and then commits adultery. And he's called a man after God's own heart. Peter denies Christ three times and he's told, you're the rock on which I'm gonna build this church. See, some of us need to realize we're the one that's guilty and we're also the one that God has forgiven. 
I know many of you saw it, but we're going to close today with a video of forgiveness that took place this week. If you followed the news, you know the story of, of this young man, Botham Jean, who was killed. Killed by a, a white woman, white cop. And his brother, this, this victim's brother, was on the stand to give an account, to give final words. And this is what he said to the murderer. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this I don't know why we lost the video, but if you've seen it, you know what happens next. He says, I don't know if this is possible, but he asked the judge, can I give her a hug? Look it up and watch it. And he walks over and he embraces this woman who murdered his brother. See, the truth of this story is that this is not just a second chance story here about Jonah. See, Christ's grace, as Tim Keller says, is not just a second chance. Christ's grace is not one more chance to redeem yourself. It's not one more chance to be a good moral person. It's the grace of Jesus Christ is not to appear before us and say, look at me, I'm honest, I'm compassionate, I'm generous. I have a servant heart, live like me and you can redeem yourself. Jesus doesn't come and say, look at me. Be as generous, caring, and compassionate as I am. If Jesus Christ came like that, Tim Keller says, if he came to be a model and an example to us so we could redeem ourselves, he is an utter failure. I wish he'd never come because nobody can care like Jesus cared. And nobody can love like Jesus loved. And nobody can give like Jesus gave. If he is my model and he gives me one more chance, all he does is show me that I can never redeem myself. As a model, he discourages me. He doesn't encourage me. He devastates me. He demoralizes and demolishes me. And he leaves me in the darkness. And here's what he goes on to say. It's not one more chance to be good. Jesus Christ came and died to pay the penalty of our failures. And if we receive him, his record becomes our record. He doesn't say one more chance to do good deeds. Instead, he says, don't you see, your doing will never get you there. 
I've done all the good deeds for you. I've lived the perfect life. I've died the perfect death. I put myself in your place. I took your penalty so that if you trust me and you lay your doing down and you trust wholly in me, the Father will welcome you as complete in me. Lay your deadly doing down at his feet. Stand in him alone, gloriously complete. So I'm going to invite the band to come, and I want you to think about this today. The God who sees you, who says, I'm not done with you, who says, because I'm not done with you, I still have a calling for you, is the same God who would look at the judge and say, can I give them a hug? Can I embrace them? Can I welcome them back? Can I give them more than a second chance? This is not somebody calling out saying, hey, we got more pepperoni rolls. We got more grace. You screwed up again. Take it again. And then when you need it, come get it tomorrow. This is someone saying, I want you to be embraced by the love of Christ because nothing will ever change your life until you understand it's the love of Christ. It's the grace of Christ. It's the hope of Christ. It's the truth of Christ. It's the fact that he went through hell for us and took it upon himself because he cared and he loved us so much. And today we need to know that. We need to come back to that. What better way to celebrate that in this new space than by sharing this communion table with each other? The scripture is an invitation to the table where we break the bread together. And in breaking the bread, we remember the brokenness of Christ's body. We remember that he was beaten, that he suffered so unjustly on our behalf. And that not only the bread, the brokenness of his body, but also the pouring out of his blood that his blood was shed for us. And I know, listen, I know the reality of this because I struggle with this. This this becomes a ritual. This becomes something we repeat, something that we just go, it's that time, we do this, we gotta do this. What I want you to understand is that when you come to this table, this is the embrace. This is the embrace of a God who says, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Listen, some of you need to hear, that's the only sermon you needed today. God's not done with you. God's not done with you. Put your name in there. God's not done with you. He's not finished. He's not done. It's not over. It's not going to stop. He's going to keep pouring out that love, that grace, that mercy. Whatever your pain is, whatever your hurt is, whatever your wounds are, whatever anger you feel, God's not finished. God's not finished. He's not finished. And because he's not finished, there's a call for you and to you and with you. And he wants to invite you into that place.